today, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you look there. For those who'd like to be in Children's Church up through grade 4, you can be dismissed at this time. We'd like to keep them with you. You're welcome to. It's good to be with you. You can find today's notes in the back of this bulletin. If you didn't receive one, there's many in the back. You can pick those up. If you're a note taker, you can find that there. It's good to be back together again. Thank you to Alex for uh, all the work that you did prep of, for this service and to bring us to the point where we're ready to say, uh, Lord, feed me. And that's uh, as I prepare in the mornings to read my, the Word of God. And many times it's time spent in worship songs and then into the Word. And so thank you, Alex, for taking time to do that. God's plan for a healthy church, study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. That's our study. If you've been with us, you know that. If you haven't, uh, welcome to a time in the Word, and don't think that you won't know what's going on. You will. As soon as we get into the Word, the Lord works through it, and so we believe it's powerful and quick and sharp as a two-edged sword, divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow, the center of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so it does that whether or not we read already in the passage today or it's new for us. So let me ask you to turn, conserve our time today, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6, and we'll read through verse 11. That'll be our uh, passage under consideration today. Speaking out of the Word of God, we'll be uh, I'll be teaching from the New American Standard. You can find that around you in the seats, or if uh, whatever copy of God's Word you have, we'll make sure that uh, we give you some verse cues so we can stay together. Paul starts out this way, who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life, verse 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently on the face of Moses because the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Verse 10, for indeed what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Verse 11, for if that which fades away is with glory, was with glory much more, that which remains is in glory. After laying a foundation last week of the language we see here in this new section of Paul's letter in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, we begin Really, we began last week uh, to slowly move through the passage. We moved through verse 6. I told you it would take us a little while. The new and old covenant mentioned here, the glory mentioned here, the ministry mentioned here, all very important and very foundational to our understanding of what the Lord has done through uh, the law and what he intended to do through the law, uh, through his uh, binding, establishing a bond with men through the law and what that law was supposed to accomplish and then in the new covenant and what it's to accomplish. And so we're taking some time with this, and, and I'm sure it's encouraging to you. It's been encouraging to me in my own personal study. We laid that foundation. We moved through verse 6. We noted a few important principles, which we'll just review very briefly. In verse 6, it says, Who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And it just seemed obvious from the language, but because there's some confusion about that in today's uh, modern evangelical Christianity. Our first principle was that we're speaking of two covenants. That's what we saw. And I think the language supports that here in verse 6, all through our passage. The language is in Hebrews 8 and 9, many, many other places. Two covenants, two ways the Lord had binding agreements or establishments with, uh, on men and with men. And so uh, I think it's important to establish that they're speaking of two different covenants. And then we took a look at this next part, 
which says, not of the letter, for the letter kills. Remember that? And we saw the trademark of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant brings death. And we saw just as a footmark, uh, footnote that when we see the word letter, Paul is really talking about the letter of the law. So as we think about letter, as we think about death, as we think about um, uh, those kinds of words we're talking about, it really sums up the Ten Commandments. It sums up the ceremonial law. It sums up the sacrificial system. It is the, really the summary of the Old Covenant. So he says the letter or the Old Covenant uh, brings death. And Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit to write the letter kills. And we're able to really capture that meaning fairly well from Romans chapter 7 and verse 9. Paul says this about himself, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And Paul, Paul used to think that by keeping the law, uh, he, he thought he was alive apart from keeping the law, he says, but he used to think that by keeping the law that he was meriting life. He, he wasn't right, of course, but that's what he thought. He didn't understand uh, what the law was intended to do. So this passage really expressed in a language that indicates Paul's realization of his actual position. Paul didn't know these things until he came to faith. Paul says, I thought I was alive, but I realized that I was actually dead. And that must have been a really terrible realization. Here's the haughty Paul. He knows he's in trouble. And then he says, and, and in Romans chapter 7, verse 10, he says, and this commandment, which was to result in life, proved it to result in death for me. It's important to distinguish that, the commandment which was to result in life. Here was the commandment of God, the righteousness of God revealed to men, keep it and you'll live. And so the commandment was intended to result in life, proved to result, Paul said, in actuality and death for me, for sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. In other words, I thought I had eternal life but realized I was on my way to eternal death. The commandment is good. It shows the way of righteousness. It's just that men can't keep the law of God. And then he says, so, verse 12, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Uh, he wants to make sure that he, he's vindicating the Lord and the commandment. The, the commandment itself uh, isn't death. The commandment was to result in life. Paul says, rather it was sin in, a, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which was good so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. So back in our original passage where Paul talks about the old covenant, he says of it, the letter kills, verse 6. He says the ministry of death, verse 7. He calls it the ministry of condemnation, which we'll get to next week. Um, the old covenant itself is holy. The old covenant itself is righteous. It's good. The old covenant itself showed sin to be as wicked as it really is. And then verse 13, Paul says, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. The law said, don't covet. So in particular, this situation for Paul just brings out, uh, thou shalt not covet. Immediately that sin became clear because that's all he could do was covet. As soon as he knew the law of God, sin inside him went to work. That was very attractive and, and that appetite was there. And the indwelling sinfulness of man then was shown to be clear, clearly what it was uh, by what was good. And it affected Paul's death because we know that the wages of sin is death. And at that point, the old covenant had done its job. So it had pointed out precisely what Paul was supposed to see. It's the reason this covenant was established, to show men the righteousness of God and that they were not able to keep it. So the good and perfect law of God had done exactly what it was supposed to do. And the old covenant was a path to life that was unattainable by fallen men. And that left Paul then and every other person with the realization that they were dead. Now I pick up in this next part of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 6. It says this, But the Spirit gives life. And we saw that first trademark of the new covenant, 
from our passage, New Covenant gives life. The New Covenant gives life because it's spiritual. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit, uh, and we'll talk about that more in depth today. It's internal, not external, and that's not because it's separated from the Word of God in some ways, but because it's connected to it, and it gives life because Jesus has come and fulfilled the requirements of the letter. So all of those commandments that the Lord laid down for men to keep and they could never keep, that was righteous, holy, and good, Paul realized that he couldn't keep it. All, it. all he did was sin when he saw it, and he realized he was in death. It did what it was supposed to do, and here comes Jesus, and he keeps, this command, he keeps all the commands, so it's connected to the letter. He fulfills all the requirements of the letter, and now through the power of the Holy Spirit, men and women can receive forgiveness and life by claiming the death of Christ on their behalf. And that sums up the gospel. What a marvelous story that is. And it exalts Jesus, and that's a great thing to do. And the old you has died, according to Romans 6, and the new you has risen to life, and the new you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to follow and obey. And it's important to remember, just like the terms of the old covenant, the terms of the new covenant have been laid down by God. And unlike Sinai, they weren't dependent upon man's obedience to the law in order to have life. See, they are dependent on the work of Christ, who fulfilled the law and provided the Holy Spirit's empowerment to obey and then by the grace of God, through faith, everyone who believes is credited righteousness. Now, last time we looked at some examples of how men and women came to be redeemed under the Old Covenant. And if you missed that, uh, because there's always a question, so how did the Old Covenant people, how did the people from Old Testament get saved? Um, and we went through all of that. If you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back to the archives and catch up. But the sum of that is that salvation has always come in the Old Covenant or in the New Covenant when a person comes to God in faith and receives grace. In the Old Covenant, of course, looking forward to what Christ would do, and God was able to forgive them because Christ would die on their behalf. And so the consistent thread that runs through salvation is that the recipient of God's grace must have this sense of their own bankruptcy, a sense of their own helplessness. Much like Paul, who said, who can redeem me from this body of death? Uh, much like uh, the uh, tax collector who came and wouldn't even look up into heaven, but beat his breast and saying, you know, uh, woe unto me, I'm a wicked man. And so, and we didn't say this last time, but it's important to, to recognize, and I think you've picked up on it, that um, uh, when people will not accept those conditions, you know, I'm not able to keep the law, I'm bankrupt, I, I'm like the tax collector we saw in Luke 18, then he must be like the Pharisee uh, from the same passage. You know, people who won't accept the correct valuation of their condition, see, what do they do? Well, they, they emphasize the ceremonial side, right? I mean, that's what they do. You won't accept, that's, that's what happened in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, it's what's happened in the New Covenant. Um, people who won't accept their situation then just emphasize the works of the law, right? I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to do as best I can. That's what Paul bragged about himself, right? Isn't that what he said? I mean, of a Pharisee, there's no one equal to me. I keep the law blameless, right? And, and so the whole idea there is, is that, okay, you won't accept this condition. The law didn't, hasn't come alive for you. You think somehow by keeping it, you're going to be righteous. Uh, you don't understand that it was made to point out how sinfulness, sinful sinfulness really is. So people who won't accept the correct valuation of their condition, what do they do? They emphasize the ceremonial side. That was the other side of that passage we saw with the tax collector. That was the Pharisee who went in, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like these rest of these people, sinners and all that stuff. You know, that, Lord, you merit, you merit, you've got some things that I, I, I have some things I merit uh, from you because I've kept the law. And so we have examples of this under the Old Covenant, and Paul uh, comments on this in our passage. And we have some modern examples under the New Covenant. People think, you know, we'll become righteous by maintaining the ceremonies, and we'll keep all the law, and we'll keep all the new moons. And under the Old Covenant, they developed this whole additional list, in, in addition to God's law, this whole additional list of oral tradition on top of the original commandments, uh, according to tradition of God's original commands, about 1600 and, uh, 613 
laws of Moses. We're going to keep all of those, and then there's this additional, that was called the Torah, and then there's an additional thing that guided the nation of Israel, and that was the Mishnah. That was this oral tradition, this commentary on building a fence around the law, so there's the additional things that you need to keep. If you're going to make sure you don't violate any of the 613 commands from Moses, then you're going to need this additional oral tradition. Make sure you do this, make sure you do this, make sure you don't do this. This will keep you far enough away from violating the law that you're going to be acceptable to the Lord. They just kind of add on the ceremonies, add on the laws, add on the requirements. Somehow, if we can come to the point where the Lord, the Lord will accept us uh, and this build this fence around the Mosaic law so people wouldn't even come close to breaking God's commands. So they busied themselves with all the sacramental, ceremonial, liturgical, ritualistic format. See, The Jews did it under the Old Covenant. It's done today under the New Covenant. And if, if you're unsure about the nature of the modern treatment of all of that, then you just need to watch some of the ceremony in the Catholic Church and in some Protestant churches around Christmas and Easter if you're unfamiliar with how the liturgical and ceremonial and sacerdotal types of systems have replaced understanding who you are and bankrupt state in Christ, uh, in your flesh, and in what Christ has done for you and how simple that is that you rely on just his work. So the Jew of old, you know, God says to the Jew of old in Isaiah 1, 11, you know, he's built this wall, he built this fence around the law, and he's trying to do all these things. And the Lord just says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? In other words, why in the world are you even doing this? Well, Lord, I mean, this is what you said, it's what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to line it all up and get it all right and do all this stuff and do it on the right day and make sure we, we, we remember the new moons and, and the festivals and all that kind of stuff, you know. What's the Lord say? I, I, have, I have enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of, of uh, uh, fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my course? This is the Lord's, as the Lord looks at them trying to somehow be holy before the Lord without coming to him with a bankrupt heart and saying, I can't do this, but somehow thinking somehow they're holy and doing, living like they, they live and doing what they do. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn and the solemn assembly. I, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They've become a burden to me. Well, who gave them? The Lord did. Who was keeping them all wrong? See, it was supposed to be uh, to reveal the bankrupt state of the individual. I'm coming to do this, Lord, because I realize I can't keep your law. So I'm going to do what you say, and I'm trusting on you, and I'm trusting on your mercy. Instead, they're coming thinking somehow they're gaining this uh, equity with the Lord. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my ears from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I'll not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourself. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be made uh, they will be as white as snow, though they be they are though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Instead of coming to God in brokenness and with the knowledge that they can't keep the law, calling on God, uh, God's mercy, and showing forth fruit of their humbleness and their brokenness by taking care of others who are in need and of mercy. Instead of doing that, they're living like they want to live, doing the things they want to do, and then coming to the temple and following the rituals and the ceremonies and bringing sacrifices, thinking that they're going to be right with God by doing those things. He's just fed up with the whole thing. I don't even want to hear this. I don't want to see it. See, that's what he says. Paul uses this attitude as an appropriate illustration, I think, in Romans 9, 30 and 33. He says, what shall we say then? 
that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? Should we say that, Paul says? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. They pursued a law of righteousness, and they couldn't grasp that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. They didn't arrive at righteousness through the law. They never got there in the sense that they never comprehended its intent. What was the law for? To show the bankrupt state of men. The holiness of God, which was not attainable in the flesh. They wanted to pursue that righteousness by works, and they stumbled over the Messiah because the Messiah's coming as a suffering servant indicated that all their attempts to reach righteousness through keeping of the law were all in vain. And to the New Covenant folks, where the problem is still just as relevant, uh, God says this in Colossians 2, 16 through Paul, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day, things which are mere shadows of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause in his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, in other words, this is kind of a summary of the law and the ceremonies and the sacrificial system and all that, Paul calls them elementary all, these sac all the ceremony, all the sacrificial system, all the keeping of the festivals, all the new moons, they were just basic instruction to what? To show us the wickedness of sin and show us we couldn't keep the law and thus point us to Christ. So Paul says incredulously, incredulously, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle and do not taste and do not touch? In other words, referring back to the law, don't do this and don't do that and don't eat this and make sure you obey this law and make sure you follow this new set, this Sabbath and this new moon, all that kind of stuff. See, why do you do that? That all refers to things destined to perish with use. In other words, he says, this is all elementary things pointing you towards Christ, and they're destined to perish with use um, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. So thinking that holiness can be attained by denying yourself things which won't be around after, after this life, Paul says, that's ridiculous. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom, and self-made religion, and self-abasement. So they look like they're holy. You're doing all these things and denying yourself all this stuff, see? Um, because you think somehow by keeping all these things and doing these things, you're gonna, you're gonna gain acceptance from God and be righteous in His sight. They have this appearance that it looks like you're holy. It looks like you're doing the right thing. Severe treatment of the body, but of no value against fleshly indulgence. A person was never saved by making an animal sacrifice, see? A person was never saved by going through a ceremonial washing. A person was never saved by maintaining a Sabbath or a jubilee year. A person was never saved by keeping a festival. A person was never saved by obtaining, abstaining from certain foods. Paul says, remember that. They were never saved by any of those things. Those were elementary things meant to point you as like an elementary school towards the basics that you could understand the gospel. See, Now, to be clear, this passage is not freedom to do whatever you want, Okay, just as a footnote. Because, as we've seen many times before, practical righteousness is something the Lord has required from each of us. But we can only work on practical righteousness after having died with Christ and receiving positional righteousness from Him, see? Imputed by God on the basis of faith. So it's not just this freedom, do whatever you want. Instead, it's you're not going to abstain from these things and somehow gain standing with the Lord. 
So the old covenant brings death, the new covenant brings life. Let's look at the next verse where Paul reinforces one of his points. Look at verse 7 of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stone came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how, verse 8, will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Let's stop right there. So Paul calls the Old Covenant uh, the ministry of death and letters engraved on stone. So he's just kind of reinforcing that whole idea. We looked at this at length last week. We won't do it again, but uh, you can catch up with that. But the ministry of death is another way that Paul refers to the Old Covenant. And we know that for sure because he says that they were in letters engraved on stone. So if there was any question about what he was talking about, then we know that he's talking about the Ten Commandments, right? So uh, he's referred to the Ten Commandments. That's God's moral law. Everything about God's moral law boiled down to Ten Commands. So the ministry of death, he says, in, in letters engraved on stone, came with glory. Now, Paul debunks this thinking that some still have that, you know, by trying to keep the moral law, they're going to end up redeemed. The moral law can't import life to a mortal man because he can never keep it. Romans chapter 4, verse 15 says, For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. Man can't keep it, but when, you know, when the law came, uh, at that point, it uh, brings about wrath. Trying to keep the law just brings about wrath, and, and so it brings God's wrath to bear, and that falls on Christ. Thinking somehow that you're going to be on your way to heaven by keeping moral law and being a good moral person is folly. The law will crush you under the weight of God's holiness unless you're protected by Christ. See, So you've got God's moral law somehow thinking you can keep that. You're going to make it. You're not. Um, but when God's holy requirement falls on Christ, it's never going to touch you. See, All that holy requirement, all the moral law that you couldn't keep, there's Christ, and it falls on him. And he takes your payment, and he'll die in your place. And we looked at that last week, but I just can't resist saying it again and exalting Jesus. So I did. So let's look at this next part, okay? So this is God's moral law. It's his Ten Commandments. It's going to fall on Christ in the New Covenant. He's going to keep it, and you're going to get credit for it on the basis of grace through faith. So verse 7 says this, But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was. So this next trademark of the Old Covenant is it came with glory. All right? Uh, the ministry of death is the Old Covenant. refers to the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. We know that. And it came with glory. Just because Paul is calling the, the letter that kills and the ministry of death... And the ministry of condemnation doesn't mean Paul is depreciating it in any way. He was constantly being accused of doing that. Do you remember? remember? Remember Stephen when he was falsely accused. The martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 verse 13. You can copy that down. We'll go, to, we'll go to the next one. Acts chapter 6 verse 13. They put forward false witnesses of Stephen on trial. This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and what is it? And the law. He speaks against the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. See, that fits perfectly, right? They, they, they know, uh, they think Paul's saying, well, we're just getting rid of the whole law. We're not going to follow it anymore. We're not going to do all these things. And Paul is saying that, but he's not saying that because God just said, well, that wasn't a really good plan. So, you know, let's just toss the whole thing out and start again. No, Jesus is going to come and here's the holy moral law of God. All the ceremonies, all the sacrifices, all falls on him along with the sin of the whole world, and then Christ bears that on the cross, and then on the merit of Christ's payment, where he fulfills all that holy law, you get credit. That's what Paul's teaching, that's what Stephen's teaching. But in their mind, when they talk about, you know, the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation, and the old covenant kills, they're just thinking, oh, you're, you're condemning the law, you're, 
you're uh, depreciating the law. Righteousness is not achievable through the keeping of the law, and that was obviously Stephen's message. And so in that respect, the eyes of his accusers, that was speaking against the law. When they saw Paul in the temple in Jerusalem, remember this, and seized him in Acts 21, verse 28, um, they cried out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people. And mark this, the law and this place. This is Paul who, who preaches everywhere against the law. The law, which is, has as its literal ministry, uh, that, that's the word deacon, deaconia. This is the same word we've looked at over and over again, where, where the actual physical ministry of the written law in view here, which is physical death. Paul says the ministry, the actual physical ministry of the written law is death. That's what Paul preached according to his detractors. That meant Paul was depreciating the law. He speaks against the law. And, and this is precisely what we pointed out earlier. If someone rejects the correct evaluation of their spiritual condition, then the tendency is to cling to legalism. And as soon as someone says that's not going to work, then you're somehow tearing down the law. See, you're depreciating the law, depreciating this righteous commandments from God. But Paul's not depreciating the law. He simply points out its ministry, which was the ministry of death. And here just Paul affirms the law. He says it came with, look at your copy of God's word, verse 7. It says it came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. Paul says, don't misunderstand me. The law came with glory. And as we saw before, that glory isn't some outward loveliness. It's referring to the attributes of God. The law came with the attributes of God. And Paul says, you know, the attributes of God were there on the mountain. The cloud was there. The lightning was there. The thunder was there. I'm not, I'm not saying that the law isn't important. I'm not saying it didn't come with glory. I'm not saying it doesn't reflect God's holiness. See? It put God's power on display. Angels were there because the law was mediated by angels. It, it, it displayed God's procedures. We saw that before. God was writing in fire with a fiery finger on tablets of stone. His holiness was there on display. His purity, his expectations, his priorities, his, his absolute authority over all things. The terror of him was there. The goodness of him was there. Paul says, listen, I'm not depreciating the law. God's, it came with glory. The glory was all over the place on the mountain. And Paul's carried along by the Holy Spirit to remind those readers, you know, don't think I'm speaking against the law. I'm not. There was, there was so much glory there at the giving of the Ten Commandments. We saw earlier that this is the Shekinah of God, the localized presence of God the Father. Uh, that's a coined Hebrew term, remember, meaning he caused to dwell. We, that idea is from Psalm 26, 8, just a reminder, uh, where we see, Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. That's the idea. The Shekinah of God there was there. The glory of God was there. And the Lord's Shekinah glory has dwelt in the Holy of Holies in Israel's past. And there on Mount Sinai, it was there in abundance. It's the same idea we get from Luke 2.9, which is a passage that will be in our mind shortly. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood up before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened, right? Uh, so the shepherds are out in the field, and the Shekinah, the localized glory of God, uh, shines on them. That's the idea. So that Shekinah of God was there on the mountain. Paul says, I'm not depreciating the law. I'm not minimizing its importance or that it reflects God's holiness. It was there. God's attributes were there in abundance. And so the giving of the law was with much glory. And what Paul speaks against and what Stephen spoke against is not the law itself and, that it, and how important it was, but the misuse of the law and using the law to try to establish righteousness. The law has its place. And as we saw last time, Romans 7, 12, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The law came with glory, but the end of verse 7 says, but if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently on the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, mark this, beloved, that 
Scripture teaches us the Shekinah of God was so brilliant that it transferred some of its brilliance to Moses' face, and that transfer was so bright that the leaders of Israel could not look directly at his face. Imagine that. They couldn't look directly at his face after he'd been face-to-face with God. The Shekinah of God was reflected on the face of Moses. It's really hard for us to imagine that you couldn't look directly at it, kind of like the sun. You know, when we had the eclipse not that long ago, and over and over again it says on the TV, you know, don't look directly at the sun, duh, you know. Like, I can't figure that out, you know? It's like Facebook. You know, don't accept a friendship from me uh, because I, I'm already your friend. Do you think I'm, I think I'm smart enough to figure out that I'm not going to accept a friendship from you if I'm already your friend, right? I mean, we don't look at the sun, but it's just over and over. Don't look at the sun. Okay, all right. To McDonald's, coffee's hot. Don't spill it on yourself. It says it right on the cup. Anyway... So it's kind of like looking at the sun. That's the idea, though. With Moses' face, he was face-to-face with God, and the Shekinah was so marvelous, and the glory of God was so marvelous that he comes down from the mountain, and they can't even look directly at his face, kind of like the sun. And so Paul says, look, I'm, I'm not depreciating the law of God. It was marvelous, and it came with glory. It was amazing. But here's the deal. Of the glory on his face, what does it say? Fading as it was. That's that next trademark of the Old Covenant. It had a fading glory like the face of Moses. In Exodus chapter 34, 29, that recounts that for us. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, that's God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Did it come with glory? You bet. So much glory that the servant there in the presence of God's glory, his face shone so that they were afraid and they couldn't look. And then verse 33, it says, and when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take, the veil, take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses and the skin of Moses' face shone So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. And the longer Moses spent from the Lord's presence, the more the glory of God would fade from Moses' face. And that's why he wore a veil so that the elders of Israel couldn't see the glory that was fading. And that's why, and that is why he wore the veil so the elders of Israel couldn't see that. And and that's precisely Paul's illustration of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant had glory. Paul's not disparaging the law just saying that like Moses' face, the glory that was put on display in the giving of the law has been eclipsed by the glory of the new covenant. And that takes us right into verse 8. Look there if you would. And, and, and let's read the two together and get the sense. But the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? It had glory but a glory that passed away and is replaced by the glory of the new covenant. The new covenant gives life. Law couldn't give life. It brings death. All it did was expose sin for what it really was. It made the standard crystal clear. And in the flesh, it produced more sin and it produced death. And so this new covenant brings life. And this is this next trademark of the new covenant. It's just obvious. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not picking out anything here that's like obscure, okay, as you can see. But as you study through the Word of God and you go verse by verse through it, and what does the Word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply? This is what you do, see? 
Okay, what are, what are the categorical statements Paul's making here? So now we can make these comparisons and begin to understand the Old Covenant and New Covenant and why, and why they're different and what they were given to do. As I told you, as we see these clues, ministry of death and then the fading glory and the ministry of the Spirit, that not only tells us something about the Old Covenant, it tells us something about the New Covenant as well. Now, and we've pointed out this term, ministry of the Spirit, is another term for the New Covenant, but it's informative for us as well. Uh, the law written on stones was a killer, but written on the heart of the Holy Spirit, uh, by the Holy Spirit, it's a life giver, produces so many other things that we're going to see. But this phrase, ministry of the Spirit, speaking specifically of the Holy Spirit, uh, ministry, again, is that word, uh, dekonia, uh, service, tending to the needs, same word we've seen over and over again. Um, the whole phrase can certainly be indicating the preaching of the gospel uh, as the ministry of the Spirit. Some would say that that's what they're talking about, the preaching of the gospel. Uh, so they would read it that way, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit, or in other words, the preaching of the gospel fail to be even more with glory. Um, it certainly can be called that, uh, the presence of the Spirit at the moment of salvation. Uh, but I don't think that's the primary intent here for Paul. It appears that Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit to help us understand some of the actual ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, and with that understanding, appreciate the next trademark of the New Covenant, which we're going to see in a moment. So the tablets of stone had as an outcome what? A ministry of death. But this ministry of the Spirit is one of regeneration, because the Holy Spirit regenerates. Regeneration refers to God's act of giving eternal life by means of the Holy Spirit to the one who trusts in Christ. A person who is spiritually dead apart from Christ is made spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit when he trusts in Christ, and that, and that puts God's mercy and his compassion on display. So, you know, as you think about the two comparisons, the, the covenant, that, the old covenant that had a fading glory like Moses' face, and the new covenant it was even more with glory. You know, the letter made clear how far we were from God, right? The letter written on stone just showed us how far we were away from God's righteousness. And remember, as in Matthew, Jesus teaches uh, those who are following him, just says, you know, you've heard uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. He says, you, you didn't even catch the whole thing, did you? If you're just thinking about that in your mind, you've committed it already. And so there's this holiness standard that's just so out of reach, and the letter made it clear how far we are with God. But it had glory, didn't it? It had the finger of God writing on stone, uh, Moses' face shining. It had the angels there. It had the fire on the mountain. It had all of that stuff, right? God's power, his awesomeness were all there. It had glory. It just made it clear how far we are with God, from God, but this ministry of the Spirit is one of uh, baptism, which is the act of joining the believer to Christ himself and the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit, and this puts God's graciousness and his kindness on display, so it's with more glory, right? And the ministry written on stone revealed that sin is alive and we're bound for eternal death, but this ministry of the Spirit is one of sealing. The Holy Spirit is, uh, through, through the Holy Spirit, God's act of giving to believers his Holy Spirit as a divine identification and a guarantee that they're his children and are going to receive an eternal inheritance in the future. And it puts God's generosity and his faithfulness all over the place. And the letter made it clear that we couldn't obey, but this ministry of the Holy Spirit is one of the indwelling spirit itself, where the Holy Spirit indwells and lives with us. And if we believe by faith and leads us to and empowers us into obedience to God and bears in us the fruit of the Spirit, right? And so we know that the Spirit is active and God himself is active in our life. And it puts God's long-suffering on display and his patience on display. See? And we noted before, for all of these, you know, they occur at the moment of salvation. The ministry of the Spirit occurs then for all believers because they're given an essential part of salvation and are permanent and they can't be reversed and, and, and they're acts totally of God and are spiritual and positional experiences, not emotional ones. Uh, they're not felt, but the results can be, see? So this ministry of the Spirit is just a marvelous thing that Paul talks about. 
How will the ministry of the Spirit, talking about the new covenant, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believer? And although that's not a complete list, uh, the marvelous benefits are obvious, see? And that leads us to this other trademark of the new covenant. The glory of the new covenant is greater than the glory of the old covenant. That's exactly what Paul says. How can it fail to be even more with glory? You just heard some of the things that are so important as part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When Paul points out at the end of verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Why? Well, because the glory of Moses brought death. And this one brings life. Because the glory was engraved on stone and this one's engraved on our heart. See, Because the glory revealed the righteousness of God which could not be achieved and this one is revealing imputed righteousness and practical righteousness which are given and then we're able to achieve. See. Because that glory on the mountain and the one on the face of Moses was soon to pass away. All the magnificence of that scene was going to vanish. And it is vanished, hasn't it? You can go there now. There's, the glory of God's not there. But this glory remains. And its influence and its effect are everlasting. And beloved, it stretches into eternity. All of that marvelous glory of God stretches right into eternity. It's illustrated so wonderfully, and we'll wrap up here with this. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, it's one of my favorite passages, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, and made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ. Enjoy that exalted position. That's your position. And mark this so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. How much more glory did the new covenant have? A glory, not that was fading, but a glory that extends into the ages to come the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. So that's Paul's point. He says, I'm not depreciating the law of God. It just had its place. And it was supposed to accomplish something in the lives of each individual to show them that there was no way you could keep it and come to God and ask for his mercy and his forgiveness. So Paul's carried along in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, and he says, who also made us adequate as servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills. When, when the law comes to life in, your life in you, in you, you die. The spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? The new covenant brings life. It functions through the Spirit. It gives life. It functions and reveals more of God's glory. And as we get our traction here, we're going to see more next week, Lord willing, and that will allow us to move more into uh, these marvelous things Paul's going to say. So we laid that foundation of the veil. We're going to see that again. If you've read ahead, you know where we're going. So may it be a rich blessing to you as you understand these things and really develop that foundational understanding of the Old and New Covenants for you as you talk with your loved ones about the law and as you witness these things become so important as you understand the reason for God's commands. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity today to be in your word. We thank you for uh, the blessing of fellowship that we have with one another. We thank you for the joy of the Be the Church class and for the Sunday school classes that are going on at that same time in different places where we can just explore what you have to say to us and just rejoice in what does your word say, what does it mean by what it says, and then come away, and then being a good steward of that word, how does that apply to me, and then beginning to grow in sanctification. And Lord, I pray that you continue to do that work in all of our lives on a daily basis. Help take us into your word each day. 
as we get up tomorrow, help us to start that way or end that way on that day. We might know what you say. We might understand why you're saying it to us. And we might be able to praise you for the blessings that you show there in your word. We can ask forgiveness for the things that we failed where we failed, and we can ask for your help to do better. Lord, what a marvelous covenant this is, one that extends into glory, one that is permanent, a ceiling that establishes our relationship with you as a permanent relationship based on the works of Christ, not on our ability to keep the law, but on Christ's ability to keep the whole law and then sacrifice himself on our behalf for our own debt and our inability. And we praise you for that. So Lord, take us into our work weeks and wherever we go this week to be salt and light. Just not to forget our primary job of the Great Commission to give the gospel. Help the law open our mouths, open your word, open their hearts that they might understand. Put in our burden of our, in our own heart about those who are lost. Help us to uh, ask for opportunity from you and follow through when those opportunities present themselves. And we pray this in the name of your son Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.